Hi, I'm Pinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello and welcome to another episode of It's a Continent. How's it going? We are here. It's, I was going to say it's night time. It feels like it, but um, yeah, recording, <laughs> recording. I feel like the day's getting brighter, but I'm still just like... Yeah, yeah, I'm still very much in my hibernated mode. Mm -hmm. Not yet ready for the summer. Oh no, definitely not. <laughs> definitely have to do a couple more laps of the pool, I think. This week's African Pride goes to Diabedo Francis Kere, the first African to win architecture's top award, the Pritzker Prize. This prize is often referred to as the Nobel Prize of Architecture. So Mr. Kere's work includes permanent and temporary structures, which can be found in his home country of Burkina Faso, across the rest of the African continent and also in Europe and the US. This journey to the pinnacle of his career comes even though Mr. Kero faced limited opportunities in his village. And at the age of seven, Mr. Kero would be in a classroom with more than a hundred others in extreme heat. As the first child within his community to attend school, these poor conditions inspired him to improve the lives of Bikinabe children. So after studying in Germany, Mr. Kero designed a primary school in his home village, Gando, in 2001 which included a lot of input from the local people. So congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> it's crazy that it's taken this long for an African to actually win this prize, but a great achievement to celebrate from Burkina Faso. Amazing. I'm more intrigued at this topic, to be honest. So I am, yeah, just looking to soak up the knowledge and being taken back to 2012. So... Go on, Chinny, share it with us. Tell us, what are we covering? <laughs> a long time ago. It's weird, ten, talking about 10 years ago, but actually being like a sentient being at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but <laughs> around this time, a decade ago, actually on this day, a decade ago, according to what you find when you scroll on Reddit, at the time of recording, of course, one of the first viral moments of the social media age took place. So they involved white American men launching a campaign in order to make Joseph Kony the most famous man in the world. Did you see where we're going with this, people who remember? remember? Millennials, stand up, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> this is a way to prove yourself that you're a true millennial if you remember this. <laughs> Kony, the leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, the LRA, which had existed for decades prior, had been indicted for war crimes and crimes against humanity. But was this a case of activism, slacktivism, or white saviorism on a global scale? All of the isms there, damn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all of the above. Mm -hmm. Let's recap what the viral moment showed. Invisible Children were the organisation behind this, a small non-profit founded in the early 2000s by Jason Russell. They produced stickers, stationery, posters, and wristbands to raise awareness about the LRA and released a half-hour film on Facebook with calls to action. On March the 5th, 2012, Invisible Children released the video, which has reached more than 100 million views in six days, so within the six days of releasing. It was clear who their target audience was. Those who grew up desensitised to previous iteration of poverty porn, seeing images and scenes of homeless Ugandan children under the threat of being kidnapped 
and at the mercy of war crimes. So this kind of leads on to the depiction of African countries over the years and actually how damaging that is. Yeah. So people are then used to, they're like, oh yes, but of course they're always flies, you know, because that's just all they've seen. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes the kind of standard. So I don't want to say it makes it fair when people say certain comments because educate yourself. But, (laughs) (laughs) yes, but at the same time, you can understand when that is reiterated over and over again on television. Also, can I just say, when I do get the odd chance to watch daytime TV, that is when they have those sorts of ads, I've noticed. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In between the stair lift adverts. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those ones. It's definitely one of those. About Jason Russell, so he was on a mission to, in his own words, stop Coney. In just three hours, the video reached 500,000 views. The Invisible Children website went down and Time magazine named Coney 2012 the most viral video of the year. Uh, So just to clarify, um, Time magazine did call Elon Musk the man of the year, so they're not necessarily always calling the right shots, Just, just so you know. I think also at the time it was pretty big also saying like 2012 was like 10 years ago like you know in terms of just things going viral I just think like yeah it's all new yeah Yeah. it's very new and that was one of the videos at the time you had fan-made flash computer games came out and wait for it even tattoos love it though they probably deeply regret that decision now it's a bit like the tattoo that's like no regrets and it's like regrets The call to action was for watchers to pay $30 to receive an action kit, which included a button, bracelet, stickers, a t-shirt and posters. April 20th was declared the day to go vandalise your local town with awareness. All invisible children needed to do was keep the momentum going. A few days later, it became more apparent that the video didn't portray the experience of Ugandans accurately. Media commentators offered critique and it looked like invisible children were profiting of the problems of the northern Ugandan people. We get to other more awkward questions like, where was the money going? How would it be spent? Why are we looking for Kony in Uganda when he was actually in the Central African Republic? Oh my gosh. Yep, those questions there. And people who'd done the most, probably those who got Kony tattoos, because who wouldn't want a war criminal tattooed on them? What, what are you doing now? Yeah, why would you want a war criminal? That's what I'm saying. Like, why? Like, I get Tony Blair on you. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm going to get a war criminal. Like, just... <laughs> That same person also has the Coney tattoo. <laughs> just has, just yes, has both. Like collecting Col- them. Collecting like, them. This is the war criminal arm. You've got to catch them all. Mm-hmm. People in Western countries felt misled. Others placed the blame on Russell. His project was egocentric and for some reason included his toddler son who he has to face that for the rest of his life, bless him. On April the 20th, 2012, people did end up going outside thinking they were changing the world, but the events flopped. Toronto, for example, registered 50,000 people, but just 50 people turned up. Invisible children ended up disbanding. And whilst they did make Joseph Coney a household name for a hot second, a very long second, or a short second if you, I don't know, (laughs) nothing happened. Invisible children claimed that their aim was to raise awareness rather than to seek Coney's prosecution, which wasn't exactly helpful. And it turns out that an easy call to action that doesn't do anything or require the target audience to leave their computer is slacktivism. So out of the $20 million raised, just a third of funds actually went on to programmes that directly helped Ugandans. With this, it's 
playing on that I'd like to say kind of human part of us that's like you know you want to help other people and you're seeing this and the way it was like I remember the video how it was pulled together and you're like we need to find him but then you're thinking I'm in the southwest where am I how 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 am I finding Coney like where why am I then putting posters up in my city center I wasn't doing this by the way but I'm just saying like (laughs) you know why why am I doing this you have like probably like a woman called Deirdre putting posters up. Deirdre, where are you finding Coney? He is not. Yes. He's not in Topshop. Do you know what I mean? It's just you know what I mean? like <laughs> what? And I think like it was playing it to that part that you want to feel like you're helping and there's this, you know, there's someone out there. And then all of a sudden, I think maybe it didn't click for a lot of people. And to be honest, when I did see this, I probably was the same. Yeah. I was so pessimistic when it came out because I was like, what is Oh, that's it? classic you, Chinny, saw... though. That's classic. <laughs> I grew with all the white people at school. <laughs> because it just didn't make any sense. It was like a reborn comic relief. Mm. Because with comic relief, I mean, I should have known from when I was five years old. And comic relief nose kept on falling off my nose. Because the comic relief nose is not for my nose. Which made me know that it's not for us. So The nose was not made for your nose. That was my early introduction to what was really going on. They have obviously cleaned it up a little bit, but it used to be really bad back in the day. A key error in the Coney 2012 movement is that there was a gross oversimplification about what was actually happening on the ground. The wider historical context was missing between the Acholi people, where the LRA splintered from, and Uganda's government in Kampala. Yes, Coney is a war criminal, but the current Ugandan government came to power through the use of charged soldiers. And it's also no secret that Yawi Museveni, who we covered previously, has his own shady dealings. His government fought alongside militias using child soldiers in the DRC. So what was really going on in Uganda at the time? The Acholi people are an ethnic group mainly located in northern Uganda and South Sudan. They'd previously had representation in Uganda's government under Milton Obote. However, a coup took place overthrowing Obote and Toto Okello in Acholi served as president for half a year until Museveni's National Resistance Army, the NRA, took over. As part of his role, the NRA began a search and destroy mission against former government soldiers in the north and in the process destroyed the Acholi community. The Acholi people mobilised, defending themselves under the banner of Uganda's People Democratic Army, which turned into the Holy Spirit Movement. Not that Holy Spirit, though. An Acholi woman, Alice Armour, claimed to act on guidance from the spirit Laquena, giving her a sense of invisibility. Those devoted to the movement were to walk into blazing gunfire all whilst singing songs and holding stones, which they believed would turn into grenades. They made progress until they were about 80 kilometres away from Kampala, where Museveni's forces defeated them. This conflict brought about the Lord's Resistance Army, and Joseph Kony was Alice Armour's distant relative. He targeted Acholi people to his brand of fundamental Christianity, which did include kidnapping minors to join his movement. Museveni's response was heavy-handed, leading to the government seeing everyone from the Acholi ethnic group as potential allies of Kony's cause. Museveni's administration rounded the Acholi people into camps known as protected villages, where they were vulnerable to sickness and social ills, They also had no way of continuing their livelihoods as farmers. The International Criminal Court drew up arrest warrants against Kony and his henchmen. Peace talks between the LRA and the Ugandan government fell apart in 2007 
and the group shifted its operations to the DRC, Sudan and the Central African Republic. The issue with whitewashing Museveni's role in the violence is that he essentially had a free pass to eliminate domestic opposition however he wanted, and that he did do later on. A key issue with Invisible Children's campaign is that their blind support for Uganda's government meant that more violence could ensue, affecting Sudan, the DRC and the Central African Republic. Kony 2012 overlooked the complicit government in its role in militarising Central Africa. The one-sided story portrayed Africans as helpless children in need of rescue by white Americans. According to Adam Branch, a professor of international politics and author of Displacing Human Rights, War and Intervention in Northern Uganda, as a result of invisible children's irresponsible advocacy, civilians in Uganda and Central Africa may have to pay a steep price in their own lives so that a lot of young Americans can feel good about themselves and a few can make good money. Selling tat. So that you know, he didn't say that a bit. Selling rubbish will end up a plastic pollution. Do you know what? Like, it's just such a waste. Um, yeah. And they're inadvertently, whether it's adverted or inadvertent, I'll just try and give some small benefit of the doubt. But to actually have a role in potentially... Um, increasing violence within the region and then they'll just turn around and be like oh why is that happening you know yeah and not actually taking accountability for their actions and i guess that's what comes from just not fully immersing yourself into what the reality was of the situation do you see what i mean because it was very Mm. much from his perspective but in the video i don't recall it being like you know what was the political situation at the time and not having that context and just being like right we're looking for coney do you know what i mean well (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's like make him famous and it's like well why it's about bringing people justice and i think it's those sorts of questions and things that weren't asked but i do feel like on the whole to a certain degree we have gotten better as a society when it's when it comes to these sorts of areas whereby i do Mm. feel people do try to actively either be like you know have you actually done your research and stuff the internet's not always a nice place but i do think it has gotten better versus what was going on in 2012 oh yeah before people were very very blind Mm -hmm. i mean now at least yeah you're right there is a little bit of that Um, although there is a lot of this sort of instagram swipe (laughs) type activism but yeah people do get called out for it when it's very surface level i don't know where or how i feel about the whole the whole situation not the coney situation but that area of activism, because there's a part of me which is like, maybe, okay, this person is doing it for likes and just to feel like though their thousands of their followers want to hear from them. But isn't that also raising awareness? But then versus, is it just a slightly lazy way to Mm. actually make a difference? I I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I mean, that's what the Black Square Summer was about, wasn't it? So, you know, a lot of people did do it because they wanted people to think that they were good people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean like they're probably the first people to change back from a, from a black square, first people to archive the posts, completely forgot about it six months later. So there is a difference. And I think that now it's, especially since then, people do get called out for surface level activism. Yeah. More so than they used to. No, definitely. I do wonder where this Russell guy is too. Anyways. Probably <laughs> <laughs> been hiding. The Coney 2012 legacy is that it taught untruths to millennials who at the time were the nascent generation. Ugandans also questioned why the video focused so much on white American men and why Ugandan suffering was used to raise funds for work that primarily takes place in the US. 
They were also understandably angered to see t-shirts being worn with Joseph Coney on the front. Again, it's not like I go around wearing a Tony Blair hoodie. Exactly. Yeah, we don't we don't go around doing that. So um, no, we don't. Oh my George Bush one. Let me just quickly try and sell that on Depop. Yeah, why were people doing that? It's so bizarre, isn't it? It just seems a bit strange. It's always like trivialising what's going on within the continent because they would take it way more seriously if that sort of behaviour was happening mm-hmm. within a Western environment. Like, why were people wearing? They were t- sorry, I just like... People were really out here. Gosh, people, sometimes just ask yourself a question. Does this make sense that I'm wearing? I've got a picture of a war criminal on my t-shirt and I'm walking around. Look, these people have tattoos that I hope have been lasered by now. So they'd do anything. Mm-hmm. I'd love to interview someone who has a Coney tattoo and be like... <laughs> if what? anybody knows anybody... <laughs> anybody just a request out there because you guys literally do well in finding us like guests and stories so if anybody out there knows someone or if you do have a coney tattoo or just please right i just want to understand because i can to a certain degree i sort of understand the mindset maybe you were like i really want to help and this is how i can make a difference but how do you feel about it now every time you look at your arm whatever body part it's on (laughs) The issue with this type of campaign is that it suggests that activism starts and ends with social media. On the other hand, we've seen how social media activism can also be a source for good. It's better when it comes from the source. For example, check out our episode with uh, Farida Namburema, who I absolutely loved. Love her. A Togolese activist who started the Tore Must Go movement. And there are obviously other grassroots campaigns, including Uganda's Red Pearl movement and Nigeria's and SARS. So yeah, there are some examples of activism within this space which actually work and develop and actually give you the experience of what's actually happening on the ground and you don't end up having a tattoo of a war criminal, you know? Yeah, yeah, no. And I think what is so important is that these people are actually telling their story. Farida is able to tell her story through the Tory Must Go movement. Ugandans today are able to tell their story through the Red Pearl movement. Nigerians talking about their experiences they've had mm-hmm. in NSARS. It's not like some person over in America that went to Kenya for a year building a school that they were unqualified to build. Yeah. Has then said, oh, this is going on in Africa, but they can't point out, they can't name three countries, you know? Yeah, so yeah. it's much more authentic story when, when it actually comes from the source. Um, and it's, yeah, we, we see that happening a lot more now, which is, which is just great. And I think these are the stories we should be amplifying even more. Yes. They need to be the ones that we need to be pushing and that, you know, the media on social media or whatever and kind of locally as well, really raising them and actually teaching people about this. Because I would really hate to think that in some school in the UK, some teacher is bringing out Coney 2012 as an example because it is a terrible example of any social media activism. Um, Honestly. In the words of writer Tedju Cole, the white saviour supports brutal policies in the morning, founds charities in the afternoon, and receives awards in the evening. Oh, gosh. It's an uncomfortable truth. Coney 2012 was part of the same system. Even the name Invisible Children is at odds with the situation. The Ugandan children were never invisible to their own families and communities. Northern Ugandan villages were already crowded with NGOs and aid workers who'd been displaced by Museveni's government. 
The whole idea of making Coney famous was perhaps a self-serving slogan, as his actions were already felt and recognised. It was more about making Coney famous in America or the West. If the charity knew any better, they'd probably be asking why the US gave the Ugandan government, who were complicit in the displacement, millions of dollars in military aid. But hey, the more you know, none of my business. What is currently going on with the Lord's Resistance Army now? So by the time of the campaign, the LRA was already weakened and two out of five leaders had been killed. Many Ugandans on the ground were a part of this. The International Criminal Court found one of the most ruthless commanders, Dominic Ongwen, guilty of 61 out of 70 counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity. What the actual? Yeah. 61 out of 70 counts of war crimes. Don't even... Anyways. I mean, all I can say is at least the ICC has found, has made a judgment here and didn't actually require the slacktivism for this to happen. Mm, yeah, they were doing things about... And I wonder actually how many people who did get a sticker and a badge know of Dominic. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And I also want to hear, I want to hear from the Ugandans' perspective. I'll be so As curious well. yeah, to know no, like, what was actually going on. Did this get to Uganda? Did people talk about, did anyone mention Kony? Or were you wondering why everyone in the West was suddenly talking about Kony? Mm -hmm. It'd be really interesting to know. Definitely, no, that's a good chat as well. So feel free to reach out, guys. Please do. According to a report in 2020, Joseph Kony is currently living in Kafia Kingi, a contested enclave on the borders of Sudan, South Sudan and the Central African Republic. The LRA now consists of a few dozen people and the main activities include farming and selling honey at local markets. How interesting. Once you take a step back and you think, what on earth was all that about? What were people thinking in 2012? What were people on? It was just too much. Yeah. But I'm just glad that at least the stories of Africans are now actually been able to be told by Africans themselves. Yeah. We don't need to wait on a Western saviour mm -hmm. to kind of, people could just say what's going on. The movement catches on. Africans no longer have to wait. Not that they had to, but they don't, there's, they're not waiting for like a white saviour to amplify an issue. And yeah. they could amplify it themselves. They're empowered to do so, which is just great. Definitely. And I think this good that we're kind of finding ourselves in the space where they are able to, Africans are sharing their stories. They're getting their own campaigns out there. And we just need yeah. to amplify it a lot more, which is... Also why we do this podcast. Indeed. Do you see things, please do share because it's really, I just think it's just really important because there's just so much that goes on. Even us doing this now, season five, there's so much that you learn and so much that has impacted countries within the continent. Wow, just knowing this, I don't know, kind of opened your mind in terms of just the realities of, yeah, certain countries in the world and interesting to reflect back on Kony 2012. Yes, a nice little throwback. We'll be back after our mid-season break. Uh, but in the meantime, we will have a special guest. We're looking forward to sharing that with you. You can follow us on Twitter at It's a Continent and on Instagram at It's a Continent Pod. You can also order It's a Continent the book at itsacontinent.com forward slash book. We've got a lovely new cover. I was very excited this morning. I saw on, um, on Amazon the new cover and I was like, oh, it's here. Yeah, excited to share that with you. Perfect. We'll, we'll see, see you guys soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.